All right. So welcome to RCIA, our um, returning welcomers and our new people. And we're going to launch right in with the first question, which is, why would we want to be Catholic? How do we know it's even true? Because we're assuming something, right? That there's truth. Pontius Pilate, who's famous for making many really horrible remarks, one of them is in his conversation with Jesus, right at the end, he says, ah, what is truth? After Jesus had just said, the people who acknowledge me love the truth because they know my name. And Pilate says, what is truth? And at that point, Jesus never says another word to Pontius Pilate, which is interesting. Apparently, truth is foundational for what Jesus is up to. And the Roman Catholic Church, the Christian Church, maintains that it's presenting truths about the world, about God, about human beings, and they're real. And yet, every time we talk to people out in the world around us, people talk about my truth and your truth and how I feel about this, right? And it's common to get the impression that truth is kind of overstated, oversold, a scam, and really it's just a means to oppress other people. So how do we deal with that when we are coming from a 2,000-year-old tradition within the church and another 2,000-year-old tradition from Judaism because, of course, we've inherited that great tradition? How do we deal with that when we've never stopped saying, yeah, but God is real. Jesus really is the Son of God. Jesus really rose from the dead. These are true. These aren't mere matters of opinion. They're realities. What if there's no truth at all? How do we know there's any truth? You see the problem? So we really need to start there and address that question. So let's begin by looking at it from the other perspective. Let's suppose we wanted to say that all truth is in the eye of the beholder. All truth is my truth versus your truth. You tell me how you feel, I tell you how I feel, and that's as far as it goes. Why would somebody want to advance that kind of view? Let's look at the reasons for that or the motives. We'll call it relativizing, making truth relative to each person. Let's try to get at that first and foremost. Either things you've heard yourself, things you've heard from other people, cultural. Why would people think that this makes sense or is a good idea? No one's ever wrong. Yes. I'm not wrong, which is probably the real point. Right? I'm never wrong. And then if I'm thinking about others, nor is anyone else. Helps people get along with each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Better relationships of peace. Acceptance. Acceptance. Yeah, definitely. I can do what I want. Stop telling me what to do. It also allows people to cross boundaries. What does that mean? So if there is no real, if there's no real truth, then um, and people can do what they want, then personal boundaries don't exist or actual boundaries. Okay, so are you? Are you meaning that in the sense that therefore we can violate one another's boundaries? Yeah. It's like yeah. a it's a manipulative trick. Yeah. Okay. Right. So you can do what you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or on that, there's there's no application of the intellect. 
because there's no rationalization. Ah, now that is intriguing too. I'm going to call it libertinism. You know what I'm talking about? Not our true devotion to liberty in the old sense, like where there is no law, there is no liberty, that tradition, but the more modern version of, of uh, I can do whatever I like, who are you to impose on me, and then I use that to force you to do what I actually like, because it cuts both ways. And then, yeah, if there's no truth, what's the point of the intellect? We've just eliminated its food. So what runs human beings if the intellect is disabled? So, what drives us? How do people talk today? They don't talk about what they believe. They don't talk about what they think. They talk about what they feel. feel. So, therefore, what drives human nature? Emotion. Emotion and desire. Now, here's what's interesting. This is not a reason for relative truth. This is a severe criticism. It's funny how it just popped out in the middle of the conversation. So what we're going to do is put an asterisk next to that, because that's actually on the other side, of the other side of the argument. Libertinism could go either way. Some people might be like, that's exactly right. And I wish to dominate you. And this doctrine of truth relativism allows me to do that, because there's no reason why, as a dentist, I shouldn't just drill my drill right into your teeth while I've got you test strapped down. Who are you to judge me? Right? It cuts both ways. So that could also be viewed as a criticism. So what other reasons do people advance or think that this is a good idea that we have heard? Or that you yourself might be mulling around in your own mind? Yeah? I don't know if this gets at it. Remember the old book, I'm okay, you're okay? Yes. That, you know, do your own thing. Yeah. I don't know if that speaks to your question. There's acceptance, and we can divide it in two cents. Others? Me. Right? Oh, there's a lack of guilt. Oh, you don't have to have guilt. No guilt. <laughs> this is extremely convenient. If there's no truth, there's no accountability, there's no guilt. So all you need is a good drug and you can eliminate your feelings. There's no real consequences. Yeah, the key word there is real. Well, right, because there may be consequences, but you're talking about something that's a real structure. But then, but the consequences actually contradicts that itself, because if there is no absolute truth, truth we don't need absolute. We don't need absolute, really, just truth. All right, there is no truth. Yeah. Then, and what I feel is real and right to me, then why would I have any real consequences. Right, and your guilt then is a mystery. They would be. I'm going to write that in here too. That's the flip side. If there's no guilt, it follows there's no justice. But again, that could be a criticism. (laughs) Right? We could argue if you've eliminated justice, that's a devastating consequence. Often the people advancing this doctrine aren't thinking about these shocking consequences, right? Yep. Okay, what else? Other motives, reasons for thinking that truth would be relative to each individual. I have my truth, you have yours. How dare you impose your views or your values on me? Other reasons for... Because we hear that all the time, right? I mean, the primary doctrine taught in the American high schools today is that what? Truth is relative. 
And if you make any claims about the greatness of Western civilization or any, po- any positive claim about the Catholic Church, oh my gosh, right? Instantly we trot out the Crusades, how horrible the church is, right? But other sorts of things, they're just fine. So this is the way young people are taught today to think that there is no truth. It's all relative. So we're taking a look at the primary doctrine in American culture right now. So we want to give every possible reason we can think of for this to see whether or not there's a good argument on this side. Because if there is, then we're done, right? This will be great. We can show the truth is relative, and we never have to come back again. The deacon's like, yeah, wait a minute, Dr. T, what do you want to do? <laughs> but that's the way we have to proceed, right? We have to look seriously at each side of the argument. The views we hope aren't true, we have to look to see if they are, and the only way to do that is to test all the reasons. So we want to get as most honest view as we possibly can. So any other reasons you can think? I'm thinking of one. Maybe you'd say it's similar to this, but a lot of people will say it encourages toleration. Right? Toleration. Okay, can you think of any others we should put up here? Yeah. In the toleration, though, I think the connotation is we never really talk about anything. It, it's, it's we don't we don't get down to the brass tacks of what is controversial because we. But there's nothing really to talk about, though. Then is there? I mean, that's the it's, point. It's very shallow. It really comes down to your feelings versus mine, my signs that I'm holding up versus your signs that you're holding up, and in the end, what is the adjudicator of conflict? What do we use? We can't use reason, so what do we end up using? Appealing to feelings, but then ultimately appeal to. Force, the ability to manipulate feelings by rhetoric, and then ultimately power. That's the irony, right? And that's, of course, another criticism of this view, that this is where this will end up leading. Let's take a look at these one by one. I'm never wrong. No one else is wrong either. What do you think of that argument or that motive? Why not? Why can't it be true to you that it's blue and true to me that it's red? I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> can copper be conductive to you but not conductive to me? If I'm a scientist, can I get away with saying that? Yeah. If I get up in a scientific conference and I make that claim, what's going to happen to me? <laughs> right. Straight jacket, right? Yeah. But if I get up in religion and say, well, God exists to you but does not exist to me, do I get put in a straight jacket for that? Well, now that's an interesting view. That's the full-on relativist, right? But the point we're trying to make here is that the scientist can't get away with making those kinds of claims. That's why my example about copper and yours about the sky is telling, right? People that say there's pink elephants in the room right now, we don't say, oh, that's a really interesting opinion. Again, we don't need the word absolute. There's simply what's true. There's truth about concrete, but there's also truth about non-concrete things. For example, yes. Yeah. So in, in other words, science is always evolving, but we yep. also evolve our 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 Some concepts of, of God, right? We do. I mean, our concepts of God progress over time. Yep, we're going to be seeing that in our course too. So I mean, we have truths, but we are growing in 
Okay, are we growing? What does it mean to say we're growing in truth? You're so close to getting at the key here, right? What's changing? The truth? Stretching toward the truth. We're trying to, right, trying to understand the truth. Okay, so now we've just made the critical distinction. What we understand the truth to be, which is in flux and in change and hopefully getting closer, versus what it actually is, whether we happen to know it or not. Right? So we always approximate the truth. No, we might actually hit it sometimes. We haven't looked yet. If we never get to the truth, that would be most unfortunate. We won't know till we look, right? But the truth relativist says there's no distinction between your beliefs and what's true. It's always relative to belief. But the consequence is no one's ever wrong. But if no one's ever wrong, we get contradictions like the one he just said. And we get contradictions about things that are critical, like scientific claims. How do you immunize science from these claims? Now, what's interesting is just this week, I saw an ad on the internet talking about how we need to value diversity of opinions in the sciences. And I thought, well, there goes my great counterexample. Right? I hope my doctor doesn't start thinking that. Yeah, or the pharmacy or the FDA. This I mean, just as good as that one. Right. You would hope. And yet, now we're hitting something huge. What is it that converts our beliefs into truths? How do we connect beliefs to truths? In other words, how do we know? Because knowledge is beliefs that we have that in fact are true. And how do we connect them? Verification or evidence, depending on the kind of truth. Some truths are concrete in the sense that you can touch them. Like copper, you can test that. Okay, But there's truths about things that we cannot see that are even more certain than the truths that you can. You say, give me an example. Okay. Two and two makes four. Have you ever seen a two? You said, well, that's, that's a two right there, Dr. No, that is not a two. That's a bunch of ink. Two is a pure concept, isn't it? In fact, two and two would make four if the earth never even existed. Still be true. Not concrete at all, not subject to empirical verification, and yet true. In fact, curiously, all scientific verification depends on an invisible structure, namely mathematics. Now, the key is, we have reasons for thinking that two and two is true, but it's not based on having two apples and two apples, because we can do the same study with a billion, and you don't have a billion apples. You say, well, actually, I work for the apple company. All right, fine, a trillion apples, right? And you can know that if you add one more apple, it's a trillion and one, and yet you don't have concrete or empirical evidence of that. But you don't need it, do you? Because math is a pure science. It's not based on a case study or an empirical case study. So we can have knowledge with verification and evidence that isn't based on what you feel and what you sense. It can be based on strict reasoning. You understand? Now, if that's true of mathematics, that could be true of other areas. We'll get to that shortly. Not a very good reason. What about this one? You'll get better relationships and peacefulness if truth is relative. 
Why not? Because what if you're the one who's knows that truth is right and real, and someone is telling you it's not, then you don't feel much peace. They do. Oh, I mean, everybody, I just need to take, you know, see a psychologist, go to a campfire and sing some songs, kumbaya, and I'll feel better about myself, and I'll feel better about you, and we'll all get along great. Okay, you hate me because I'm wrong. Why is this argument a bad argument? What's the problem? Look at this itself and see whether this assumes something that's supposed to be true. What does this assume? It that what? assumes that both parties are okay with the relativism. I need a stronger argument. You're on track. You've got your truth. Okay. It conflicts with my truth. Okay. If your truth is true to you and my truth is true to you, then we are in conflict because I know I'm right, but you think you're right. But I also know that I'm right and you think you're right. So well, so if truth relativism is true, we can eliminate the conflict. We can just say you have your views and I have mine. We can all get along now. No, we can't. Why? Because my way is the right way, not yours. Yeah, but my way is also the right way and I've learned to get along with you. It's like, look, if you say you love lima beans and I say I love steak, why can't we get along with each other? At parties, you eat your lima beans and I'll eat my steak. Everybody wins. We can have peace if we'll just endorse truth relativism. Yeah. It creates a power, though. Somebody has to have the power to win. Why? It's like a bullying type of thing. Yeah, but I'm trying not to bully. I'm trying to have a barbecue. I'm trying to have peacefulness. What's wrong with my argument? Look closely. Well, what's wrong with your argument is that to say that I like the limes and you like steak and that's fine. But what if I say I like limes and by the way that steak, those are lima beans to me. I'll say, okay, you can call things whatever you like. And I'm going to call your lima beans steak, lima beans. I lost track of... Meat is murder. Whoa, now... Meat is I, not murder. I reject your value of peace. The slaughter of animals is wrong, and I will use force to compel you to submit to my view. Who are you to say otherwise? And I have the bigger gun. Well, but that's not acceptable. I'm going to form a protest. <laughs> I'm going to accept that you eat steak, and you're going to accept that I eat lima beans. Yeah, so you should just accept that I'm murdering people. And we are just going to, but that's acceptance, right? Right. Couldn't we just accept the Nazis murdered the Jews and say, you know, we just got to accept, the Jews should have accepted it, right? Why didn't the Jews accept it? Jews are a scourge on the earth. This is my truth. Yeah. I have the gas chambers. Yeah. Peace, peace does not imply a relationship. Peace is, can be very superficial. Okay, think hard about this. Think about what's being assumed in the argument. Look closely. They're assuming that you're both free. They're assuming that peace is what? Good. Good. They're assuming that it is true. That peace is good. Peace is relative too. Yeah. Why in the world, if you're a relativist, should you advance peace? peace is not Why shouldn't you advance war? Same argument down here. This assumes that toleration is what? 
good. If you're a relativist, why would you be tolerant? Stalin was a relativist. Marxists don't believe in any moral truth at all. Did that make him real advocate of peace and toleration and let's all get along kumbaya style? No, he sent 80 to 100 million of his own people to the gulag, right? So does relativism make you a peace motivator? No, because the whole point of relativism is you don't have to endorse peace or toleration either. You see the problem? So some, almost all of these arguments, here's another one. Acceptance is good, built into the argument. See, here's the thing. Most people that believe in truth and morality have already granted that. We generally should accept people. Not necessarily the behavior, but people, right? It's generally a good thing to be an advocate of peace. Toleration is very useful. We can disagree with each other without trying to kill each other, which is the actual definition of toleration from the old colonial time. We would probably say, yeah, those are good things. And by sneaking in the fact that there's a common value, they can then pretend that truth relativism is correct. But the reality is, if you're a truth relativist, you do not have to accept that peace is good, that toleration is good, or that acceptance is good. What's fascinating is that every one of these arguments assumes the opposite of what it's claiming. It assumes there's a real truth. You understand? If you're a truth relativist, you shouldn't be bound by anything at all, including, if you're a truth relativist, the claim that we shouldn't just kill you. Why not? But the relativist always assumes, like the criminal, right? Always assumes that the rest of society is going to be good. Because if all of a sudden society said, that's it, we're done with this, they're going to suddenly trot out fairness and justice, right? The people that stand before the judge have slaughtered the rights of others and then start complaining about how unfair it is. You're like, boy, it's amazing how suddenly they believe in justice. Yeah? Do you understand what I'm talking about, the structure here? Here's a really, really um, simple way to look at this. There is no truth. That's the claim of the truth relativist, yeah? Okay, that statement is either what? True or false? If it's true that there is no truth, then what follows? That there is a truth. Namely, this one, that there is no truth. So if it's true that there is no truth, then there is a truth after all. In which case, if it's true, it's actually false. So that's called a circular argument. Self-refutation argument. Okay. It's like when I say, I am not I. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And of course, if it's false, it's also false. So ironically, if you claim there is no truth, you're self-refuting yourself. Because necessarily there is truth. Truth is absolutely unavoidable. Yeah, fire away. So when I was a new Christian, I read uh, Mere Christianity. Oh, that's a great book. Um, and one of the points that Lewis makes, it's been a long time since I've read it, but this has really struck me hard, is the concept of fair and unfair, right and wrong, good and bad. And that he was talking about the situational kind of the same thing. He's talking about relativism. Um, and what he said was, you cannot have, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but you cannot have 
concepts of right and wrong, fair and unfair, without there being an absolute. Because otherwise, without having truth, okay? Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, it's there is no fair, there is no right, there is no wrong. Correct. I think his example was if that if if I take your seat on the bus and it was right to yours and you say that's unfair, well then you're talking about a verifiable truth. Well, verification isn't relevant. Well, there is a fair and an unfair. Mm. There can be truths, and we can insist that there are truths about things for which we have no verification. Okay. In fact, we'll talk about a certain class of those, okay. which will lead us into so the doctrine of faith. Well, I would say that Lewis is giving us an analogous picture. Okay. Let's, um, okay, the conceptual issue you're talking about is the argument that he made earlier. Okay. If there's no truth, the intellect is entirely empty. And even the people that argue for what we might call a kind of a, a means-end intellect, Hume's advocates who deny there's any moral truth, but say the intellect is nothing but a calculator to help us figure out the best way to get what we want, the claim that this is the best way for me to get what I want is supposed to be a true claim. This is the best way. If I go that way, it won't work very well. Well, that's supposed to be a true and false claim too, isn't it? So in the end, any sort of rationality assumes truth. Now, here's where the relativist is partly right. Because it's rare that people are dead wrong, completely wrong altogether. In other words, how did this emerge? Can I erase this? Oh no, Deacon, we're in trouble. Uh-oh. Who did that? Oh, you did the wrong one. <laughs> All right, no problem. I'll work on this while they solve that problem. We divide truths into two kinds. Can you see this or is it too thin? I'll use this one. Yep, that's good. We're introducing a lot of terms here, and this pen is dying. Better. And I'll explain what these terms mean very clearly, okay? An objective truth is a truth about an external object. So, the claim is true or false if it corresponds with the way the object really is. So if I say there's a bluebird on the windowsill, that's an objective claim. It's true or false only if what? If there's a bluebird on there, it's true. If there's no bluebird on there, it's false. We can all say there's no bluebird on there and there can really be one and we're all wrong. Opinion polls have nothing to do with it. You understand? A subjective truth is based on the subject. In other words, the person who's believing the truth. So for example, supposing I say, man, I'm really feeling achy right now. That's a truth about me. You understand? So insofar as it's a truth about me as a subject, oh, not bad, getting that cleaned off. Okay, insofar as it's a truth about me as a subject, it re- refers back to me rather than an external object or a truth about how I feel. It's confusing these two sorts of things of putting things like religion, whoops, and morality in this category, but keeping science and math in this category, 
that causes the problem. Now, you might say, okay, well, how do I know that that's actually right? How do we know that there are religious truths? Well, let's give you an example, and we can prove this very readily. The claim that God exists, is that an objective truth or a subjective truth, assuming it's true at all? God is an object, yeah? He's either out there or he isn't. Do you think that God's existence is based on our opinion? No. Let's do a test and find out. What was your name again? Chase. Chase. All right, Chase, are you a theist? Are you one who thinks God exists or don't you know yet? Yes. All right. I want you, if God's existence is different based on who our believers are, let's have him believe that God exists and see what happens. Believe really hard. Ready? One, two, go. Oh, God just popped into existence. Well done. Okay, now, I am, being the atheist, I'm going to disbelieve that. God just disappeared. <laughs> All right, now you're going to have to will a little bit harder, aren't you? All right, go. Darn it, God came back again. Gone. Now, how many of you think that God just appeared and disappeared back and forth based on our amazing beliefs? So is it really true to him that God exists and true to me that God doesn't? No. He believes that God exists. I believe that God does not exist. And one of us is right and one of us is wrong. You say, but what if that doesn't make you feel good? Tough. Right? I mean, look, I give this example to my students. This is how the truth relativist looks at the world. I'm standing on the train tracks, and I see that locomotive coming. And when that locomotive hits me, see, it's true to me that that's nothing but cool jello. And as it hits me, it's going to ooze around my body. It's going to be wonderful. Right? Because the nature of the train, an external object, changes based on what I believe. Yeah? And of course, you know what's going to happen when that iron train hits me. My beliefs do not change the reality of the train, do they? And I'll be splatted, and Darwin will work yet again. That's the nature of objective truth. Just because you don't like it or don't want it to be true doesn't change anything. It's still true. The question isn't whether there are true or false claims about religion. The question is how do we know them? And that's the question that Denae, Desiree, I'm getting you two confused. There's two Ds. Denae. That's the question that Denae raised by asking the question of verification. Okay, There are claims about Alpha Centauri that we do not know. Right now, there could be a bunch of aliens playing poker, and one of them has aces over eights on the third planet around Alpha Centauri. And that claim that I just made that that's true is either true or it's false. But if you said to me, Dr. Seal, I'm really doubtful that you know that, I would say you're right. But it's either true or it's false. But we have no way to tell, do we? Okay? There's tons of claims about the angels of which we have no way to verify them because we don't know almost the first thing about angels. We know some things, but eventually, you know, when you get to the other side, you get to pull out of the library the angel history. You'll be shocked at all you find out. But we have no way to know about that. Tons of truths about angels. We just don't know what they are. On the other hand, we have amazing numbers of truths about biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, history, the arts, the sciences, full of true things. And in our point in human history, we have come to know many of them 
because we've been able to evaluate and look at the evidence for them. So the key is what transforms mere belief into knowledge. That's what we're after. But there are truths. They're just our truths. And if we try to deny that there's truths, we refute ourselves because we're claiming it's true that there is no truth. Everyone understand? Okay, this is a critical foundational point for us. Okay, if you're in your mind saying, well, I don't know, maybe truth is just relative to the believer. We need to look at the arguments for that further. Any challenges, questions, objections at this point that we need to evaluate? Okay, so I have a different marker now? Yes. Believe, but you have to demonstrate theory, find it, that's, that's my truth. truth. That's, that's my truth. Yeah. I want to see the evidence. Me too. I'm actually, I, you know, the thing is, okay, this is probably a bad point about me, but while the deacon was praying, I was thinking to myself, I should test the marker. I didn't do it. I listened to the prayer, participated. Well, that's still a little, um, little blue. But, you know, it's better than it was, right? Yeah. Okay. So I have a yes. lot of relatives that are atheists. Oh, I'm sure. I'm an atheist, obviously, well, or I wouldn't be here. No, you no, could be I here and be an atheist, atheist, of course. Atheist. Yeah. I could be here and so, But my, my relatives who are atheists, I always think, well, because they haven't had the kinds of experiences of God that I have, or they haven't tried, tried to draw towards the towards God and experience that because they just had an experience that made them discount God and then they just went on from there, right? So um, I always thought, well, it's okay that they are atheists because they just never, they just never tried. So for them, atheism is like a valid relative truth, right? Mm, not to, it's not, we wouldn't call it a relative truth. What we would say is, given their experience and the uh, evidence they've seen already, yeah, the their, their views are justified. Right. Justification for your views is always relative to your evidence base. And I always think that atheists have um, come to a conclusion that there is no God based on some kind of experience, and actually the belief of atheism is um, suitable to them for Maybe. some reason. Yeah. There's a lot of teens that are atheists and they yeah. have no experience but at all. I'm talking about <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. So I've always just kind of accepted their atheism, thinking that is where they are. Okay, you're not accepting I, their atheism; you're accept, accepting the people. Yes. Right, because you're a theist. If you accepted their atheism, you would change your mind. Right. Um, you're right, because the warrant is, I believe in God. So that's the underlying truth for me, right? The warrant? The, yeah. The evidence? Yeah. Yeah, you believe that God exists because you've seen the yeah. evidence that supports that yeah. conclusion. The atheist friends of yours don't believe that because they have not seen that evidence. Right. And so they disbelieve that on, on that basis. But I always say to them, well, either God exists or God doesn't exist. Yeah, it's the first point. So either, <laughs> we're either, yeah, we're either, you're either I'm right or you're right. But, yeah. you know, there's no way that... Either of us can prove this right now. So, oh, really? I will just accept well, that's it. unfortunate. That's where we're going to go with this? Well, that's, that's how I've always dealt with it. Here's that. the thing. We won't know until we've looked. Yeah. Maybe we should look. Well, I always, I always felt like I had looked, and I, but they had never taken the time. They hadn't the desire. Okay, but that's a problem. 
Okay. Yeah. Look, here's the thing. If we won't look at the evidence, then we're ostriches. Yeah. Putting our heads in the sand. Yeah. And you lose your justification when you refuse to look at the evidence. Uh-huh. You become culpable for not bothering to look. See, the truth is not our servant. The truth is our master. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to, our beliefs are aimed at the truth. We're supposed to be lovers of the truth, mm-hmm. just like we're supposed to be lovers of the good. Mm-hmm. So if we're unwilling to look at what's, look at the argument, mm-hmm. then it suggests something else is going on. Mm-hmm. Like some of the motives we looked at earlier. Well, if I believe in God, I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do which is usually a primary motive for people. But that's not a good reason, right? That's a motive not to look at the evidence. So if people are deliberately not looking at the evidence, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. But there's no way you can make them look at the evidence. You can suggest it. You can say, hey, take a look at this argument. That's where I bow out. For me, there's a lot of evidence. They have never felt like looking at the evidence. And so I just... Well, we don't really have anything to talk about. Well, you feel have, like... on theism, you might have lots of other things to talk yeah. about, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, there's no force. God is a b- tremendous believer in human freedom. So if he allows people to believe what they're going to believe in spite of the evidence, then we kind of have to follow suit. Mm-hmm. So compelling people to look at the evidence like you will look. You know, parents might do that more with their children. You will look at the evidence. But as the children get older and older and older, you've got to pull the hand back. Mm-hmm. Say, so, well, you're going to have to make up your own mind. Right. right. Yeah, God is a tremendous respecter of human freedom. He allows us to do the most unbelievably horrible things to each other. So he really wants us to make that determination. And if he's too strong and causes us to make our beliefs, we won't be able to have genuine love. So we have to follow suit with that. And, but on the other hand, if the person will listen to the argument, you can certainly present that. Okay, so let's start there then exactly where you started us. Atheism versus theism. Because those are our options, right? Did I just switch pens or am I okay? Okay, oops. So atheism, theism is the old Greek word theos for God. A means negative in Greek. So atheism means there is no God. Let's just sort of get our terms done. Obviously, if atheism is true, Catholicism is false. And so that's game over right there. So the Catholic position is atheism is false. And so our view, of course, is called theism. There is a God. Now, we have not given you any reason to think this is true yet. I know that many of you have experience, and you have all sorts of reasons for thinking there is a God, probably. Otherwise, why would you be here? (laughs) You at least hope there's a God. Um, uh, But if you're... If you have doubts and worries about this, we're going to directly address this. I just want to sort of lay out all the different options so you can see how the moves go. Okay? Everyone understand what I'm up to? Yes. Do we want to address the whole multiple God? Yes, that's next. Well done. Okay. So theism, there is a God, and technically this should be like that. You know what I mean? But nowadays theism tends to mean the big G. But yes. Technically, you could have theisms of two kinds. You want to tell us what they're? No, I just, uh, for the sake of conversation. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to do it. Polytheism. And, well, no. Poly means lots. Mono means one. Pantheism. The Greek word pan means all. So, 
Pantheism is actually denial that God exists. Pantheism says everything that exists is God rather than that God exists as a separate thing. Okay? So people that are pantheists essentially deny God's existence. But they get the, they get the warm fuzzies of theism without having to have the real view and its consequences. Kind of like California. A lot of people, <laughs> California spirituality, you have spiritualism but no spirits. You know what I mean? Warm fuzzies in religion. Now, there is another view, since we're talking about other terms you hear. You've ever heard the word agnosticism? Yes. Yeah. I'm going to write that in here. That's not a doctrine. It's not like a position on theism. Because there's the A, so you know it's not something. But look, it's gnosis. And gnosis is one of the Greek words for knowledge. So the agnostic says, well, I don't know whether there's a God or not. So that person is saying, atheism could be true. Theism could be true. I have no idea whatsoever. I just don't know. And that is a much better position for a person to be than to be an atheist. Atheism is actually extremely difficult to substantiate because you have to prove there isn't something in the universe. I mean, how do you know that? How do you know on the other side of a certain galaxy God's not hiding back there? Right? It's like denying there's any unicorns in the whole universe. How, how would you know that? You'd rather be an agnostic, a unicorn agnostic. You would say, well, I don't know if there's any unicorns. Show me one. So most atheists are actually agnostics if they you know, are honest about what they're saying. But of course, lots of people claim, oh no, I know God does not exist. But agnosticism is a view that says, I just don't know. And a true agnostic is a wonderful first place to be because that means hopefully they want to know. I love talking to agnostics. Atheists are, well, more interesting. Let's just put it that way. Okay, polytheism. So polytheism says there's lots of gods. Monotheism says there's one. So polytheism is, of course, old paganism. This would be the gods that you probably remember from school, the Norse, Thor, Freyda, all those, or the Greek gods, you know, um, Hera and Zeus, Poseidon, or the Roman. What you start to find is the same conceptual gods pop up but they have different names. So kind of what we're talking about is the same pantheon of gods um, and that every culture renames them all. Okay? And then monotheism says there's only one god. Now, let's see, how do I explain this? I'm going to make a distinction here, but it's, I'm not sure how practical it is. I guess I just have to do it. Okay, perfect theism is the doctrine that the one God that exists is perfect or supreme. Okay, so this would mean three key attributes. Omniscience, that's infinite knowledge. Omnipotence, infinite power. And omnibenevolence, which is infinite goodness. If you have a being that you think exists and you call him a god and he's less than that, then you are advanced imperfect theism. And there have been some people who have advanced doctrines like this. Okay? But nowadays you don't really find that very often. 
You say, like, give me an example. Um, Emerson. Remember the uh, romantic poets from the 1820s and 30s? And they kind of have this, some of them are pantheistic, nature is God. Others kind of have a vague designer out there, sort of, that made nature. And they sort of go to the temple of nature. Do you remember, if you remember your literature, you might remember some of this. Process theologies. Mormons. Technically, Mormonism would be an example of this. Mormon, they call God Heavenly Father, and he was a man as we once were is the doctrine, which means kind of their God is, um, he's not absolutely perfect in all respects. He's coming along, and he's way ahead of you, and maybe if you're a good Mormon, you'll get cowed up. All right? That would be a, that's a good example. Jehovah's Witnesses? Probably under perfect theism. But it depends on the nature of Jehovah. You'd have to sort of figure out exactly what they mean. But the three major theisms of today, which are? What are the three major monotheisms? Yep, exactly. All right. Now, here's something interesting, which you might not (laughs) ever thought about. These are compatible. Well, Hinduism is a polytheistic, there's two versions of it. One is polytheism, the other is monotheism. So that's Hinduism is a complete mystery. What is it? It depends who you ask. But what I mean is this. You could have a perfect theistic being and have Jupiter and Hera and Poseidon. Well, who are Poseidon and Jupiter and all those guys? Okay, that's one view. That's the modality theory that we have in Hinduism. If that were the case, then we would have a kind of a multiple modality monotheism, but it would still be monotheistic. Right. And so you have Amun-Ra, and you have Horus-Ra, and you have three different rotations. Exactly. The problem with interpreting paganism in general this way which it's very popular nowadays to do that because it kind of fits this vague monotheism that people like to endorse, is that the myths have the gods in conflict with each other. And so they appear to be real persons who are battling one another. And so we get a contradiction if it's you battling yourself. Okay, The three major deities or three major expressions of, of Ra, Amun-Ra, Hor, you know, those, those are manifestations explicitly. But a lot of the other ones aren't. Like Anubis is clearly a lesser god, you know. Amma that eats up your heart if you don't make it. He's clearly a god, but he's also a crocodile. You know what I mean? So, but, so modalism, that you have God expressing himself in lots of different ways, okay, uh, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with polytheism. But you could be a polytheist and think there's lots of gods and at the same time think theism is true. And here's what's really going to shock you. Are you ready? Judaism and Christianity both endorse this view. polytheism? In this sense. Uh And I want you to think about why. What do Christians believe exists besides God and human beings? And animals and plants. What was that? Well, that's a member of the Trinity, hence God. Keep going. So are you talking about the devil? The sun? The sun is in the son of God or the sun like this hot thing? Yeah, another member of the Trinity. We're still on the God level. So you're talking about the devil. And, yes? I don't know. And the angels? Yeah. Well, well, saints are us, right? Hopefully. Angels. 
Angels. Okay, now let's think about the possibilities here. On the top, you have God, infinite spirit, yeah? Here you have us, body, spirit, composite. In between, you have finite spirits. And they are called by us? The angels. Okay, and the ancients called them what? The gods. Intriguingly, in the Hebrew Bible, God himself calls them the gods. Okay? We have grown used to saying monotheism is true, paganism is wrong, therefore monotheism, there's one God and all these other ones are fake. Well, a lot of them may well be fake. But the ones that actually correspond to real angels or the ones that actually correspond to real demons are not fake. And the church has always endorsed that angels and demons are very real. So when Cortez got to Mexico City, he went up with the emperor up to the most bloody pyramid and he said, I'm gonna, I want to put an icon of the Virgin Mary in here because he was so horrified at the bloody massacres that they were performing to their God. Okay? And of course, if you know Israelite history, because you know, they're sacrificing in, in infants and all this, there's a God in Israelite history called Molech and the people were induced to throw their infants into the brazing hot arms of Molech. And so what you find at different points in history are people worshiping deities that demand the sacrifice of children or demand human sacrifice. And you step back and look at it from a Christian perspective, what you would say is, this is the demonic activity, the same demonic being. Maybe he's named Molech, maybe he's named something else. It doesn't really matter the name, right? There's an evil spirit who's out there trying to get this to happen, and he likes it. And of course, these beings are... Um, they live forever. So, paganism. So, could the pagans have been worshipping devils or demons? Sure. Some of them might have been worshipping angels, too. Got it all mixed up. Paganism is, as C.S. Lewis put it, <laughs> rays of celestial light darting through clouds of imbecility and madness. The pagans were very close to the truth on many fronts. And then they just went completely south, totally wrong. So what we find here is you can read the old myths, and of course we don't know that they're true, okay? but the things they're telling us about the nature of these other gods, they may very much have been real, had interaction with men. Example, Moses, let my people go, right? Moses goes to the Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, I won't do it. Well, wait a minute, which God do you represent? The God of the Jews. Don't know that one. Give me some evidence that you're like a priest of this high God. And Moses says, okay, watch this. Right? Throws his stick on the ground. Remember this one? Mm -hmm. And what happens to the stick? And they're like, nice. Okay, that's good. <laughs> what do the priests of Egypt and the sorcerers do immediately? They throw their sticks down and they turn into snakes too? How'd that happen? How'd that happen? They served what? Real gods. In fact, at one point, God tells Moses, the reason why these plagues are taking so long is I am going to get me glory against the gods of Egypt. I intend to show them who's who. So we don't disbelieve that sometimes these beings are real and are active and a problem. The church has to deal with that. And if you want to call them a little g-god, that's fine because idiots worship these demons, right? We just call them demons nowadays. But the pagans would have called them gods and goddesses. 
All right? And so in that sense, Jews, Jews are a little harder on this one because they were polytheists actually half the time and this caused them trouble. But as Christians, we would say there's clearly one supreme perfect being, but there's a whole bunch of lesser beings in between men and God. And they are the ancient gods, if you like. They are the angels and demons. We make them clear distinction into angels and demons nowadays. But it really helps you understand ancient paganism, that the pagans were interacting with the angelic realms. So you're saying that the priests in Egypt, when they threw their staffs down, they're the gods of Egypt were demons? It, yeah, in that case, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. The, 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 um, the devil himself likening himself to God. Yeah. Isn't that the, the issue? Oh, yeah. If the, de- the demons love it. See, they think that, okay, how do I put this? They're frankly insulted by human nature. The idea that God would mix pure spirit with muck and mud like us, they think it's disgraceful. Frankly, biology is revolting to them. They're the first racists. How could God possibly mix pure, unadulterated spirit into these mucky little creatures? It's gross, frankly, very gross. All right? And, that way, yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> although that's not true. Oops, he just got converted. Another pagan. Darn it. Sorry, Deacon, we lost one. <laughs> All right? And so, what they want to do is show God up. Because one day, God came along to them and said, oh, I got this great idea, right? I'm going to make these creatures in my own image called men. And the angels are like, oh, that's curious. And two-thirds of them are like, whoa, I love it. Who ever thought of mixing matter and spirit? Right? And one-third are like, this is kind of odd. They're starting to get a little bit of that racism, yeah? And then God told them something else. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to become one of them. And at that point, the remaining third are like, oh, lost his mind. We need to fix this. And so ever since, they've been trying to outdo God by showing God that he made a fundamental error with human beings. That's why we are the battleground. And so they'll masquerade as gods and they'll do little temptations and all their own little tricks because what they're trying to do is show God that we were a major error. So if they can get us to worship them, especially when they masquerade as animals like in Egypt... This to them is amazing. Here's these idiot humans worshiping animals beneath them instead of God Most High. God, what didn't we tell you? Look at these idiots. So God says, okay, I'm going to show the Egyptians who's the God of Israel. And so at first, the Egyptian sorcerers, they can do the stick. Throw it down. And then what happens? Moses' snake eats up all the other snakes. They're like, and then Moses did the water into blood, right? And you know what the Egyptian sorcerers did? They turned water into blood. In fact, the Egyptian sorcerers were able to do the first two or three plagues. And Pharaoh's like, I'm just not that impressed. And then the next plague, they couldn't do it. And the next plague, they couldn't do it. And then Exodus goes so far as to say, and the Egyptian sorcerers were covered in boils too. So not only could they not perform the plague, they were impacted by the plague. Their own gods didn't protect them. You see what God is doing? He's showing who's the true God. Everyone understand? So paganism is real in the sense that there are a huge set of beings between men and God. And we've always believed that. From cherubim, seraphim, the archangels, the 
this is the layer you're talking about. I am indeed. My understanding is that that we we really can't adequately portray an archangel, for example. You know, Why? A, a shining person with wings and. Why can't we portray it? Because the, the in, in in this is my opinion, the the accounts of the angels in um, the Apocalypse of John, or I think Ezekiel, are. I don't know how you could get that down on a piece of canvas. Okay, that's one way. It's hard to represent, but more essentially, if you are a being of pure spirit, meaning nothing but a mind, do you have a shape? Right. No. And the point I'm drawing towards is that their power is is awesome. And purely awesome. mental. Yeah. They're not physical beings at all. They can take physical form, like Gabriel showing up to Mary. Sure. Right? But by their essential nature, they are spirits. They're not like us, mind-body composites. The angels are completely different in kind. And we'll have a whole day on ghosts, demons, and angels. So we can lay all this out, which is extremely interesting. Well, I won't get ahead. I want to know about the ghost thing. But, I'm just, I'm just saying that but we'll get to that. Worship the fallen angels as gods. Yes. I, I could understand that. Yes. Because they're terrible in their aspect. Right. Very powerful. Right. Very powerful. Very powerful. And we see a lot of evidence of that power until Jesus comes. And then Jesus goes around and he's in direct conflict with the demonic again and again and again. And once the Holy Spirit comes into the church, you see the tide go. Whoosh. And then for 400 years, the Christians, through love and truth, completely defeat pagan Rome. Millions of people converted to the faith. While it's an illegal religion and they're under persecution. Then the empire falls, overcome by pagan barbarian hordes, and then what happens to all those barbarians? They also all what? They all convert too. And at that point, paganism is pretty much dead in the West. The entire Western world converts. All you have left are some Lithuanians and Vikings. That's it. Are you a Viking heritage? Vitartas, uh, Lithuanian. Vitartas. Lithuanians, yeah. interesting. I'll write that down, make By a the note. Way, they still practice paganism. Of course. And there's a lot of neo paganism now, people going back. But. It's an extraordinary thing, this effect of the faith on the world and how paganism simply collapsed in the, faith of, in the face of authentic monotheism. And we'll understand that better as we see the unveiling of, of, the, of these things over time. Okay, so we're getting all over the place. But you see how paganism is so complicated? Sometimes people wonder, well, how in the world could, you know, all of a sudden you get all these truths about God and no one knew anything before? People knew all kinds of stuff before. It was just fuzzy. Just fuzzy, right? Okay, so then we have perfect theism, but we also have two kinds of monotheism in another sense. We have revelatory and non-revelatory. Non-revelatory monotheism says something like this. There's a supreme being. He made the world, and that's that. He never interacts with us. Think of it as non-interactive theism. This would be the view that was popular during the um, Enlightenment. Remember, you ever heard about deists? Like Jefferson, these kind of people? God doesn't interact. Total non-interaction. Leaves men off to their own devices, and now we do our thing. So it's kind of hard to have a religion of this, but
but you might argue back in the day at least, not really now anymore, but some of the Unitarians might have been non-interactive theists. And then you have the revelatory, which are the interactive ones. And in these theisms, God enters the world in some way. And of course, that's where you get these three. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. In each one, they insist that God in some sense entered the world and shifted the equation. So, what we Catholics think is first, theism is true. Second, monotheism is true. And third, it's revelatory. And the reason this is very helpful is you can see how these are really the only options. Right? Sometimes you think about the world as, oh, there's like 45,000 different religions or whatever. And you think, how could we ever choose? But the reality is you can group them pretty quickly. And if God exists, number one, you know theism is true. Then the question is, is there a supreme being or not? If you can prove a supreme being exists, then monotheism is true. If monotheism is true, then the next question is, did he ever interact with the world? If he did, then revelatory monotheism is true. And there's only three major religions that even state that that happened which instantly gives us three options. The Jews are interactive uh, theists who think that God has not yet fully come. The Christians say he did come, and the Islamists, it's much more complicated, but there's not really so much of a coming at all. Okay? But that's it. You really quickly narrow down your options. And so a huge question is for us, first, does God exist? Is theism true? And second, is Jesus who he said he was? Because if so, if those two answers to those two questions are yes, then perfect theism is true, and Christianity, the Son of God, Jesus coming into the world as the Incarnation, is the revelation of God in the world. Everyone understand that? The structure? Again, we haven't proven anything. All we're trying to do is lay out a structure. Any questions about that structure? Uh, Islam does not see angels and demons. and They have those things, yeah. Definitely. So There's no messianic element to Islam, except for the Shiites. Whoa, you lost me on that. There's no waiting for like a son of God type figure, because for Islam, God is fundamentally unknowable. That's why you can't even represent him as a physical being. So this idea that man is made in the image of God, where the God should represent himself in human form, is to them gross and sick. Similarly, like we were just talking about from the other side, the demons think that it's gross and sick. Right? There's no way that could happen. God could not contaminate himself with, with humanity. So at the Dome of the Rock, there's a huge round symbols with Arabic writing saying, the Trinity is a lie. The Incarnation is a lie. God never does that. Okay? So they would never have a kind of interaction of that kind, an invasion of our realm where God manifests himself. That would never happen in Islam. And we'll see how that impacts their conception of God later in our course, because it's a very, therefore it's a very different view of God. For us, God is knowable. Yeah, there's no epiphany. It's, it's brutally monotheistic. There is right. one God. There is one God. Right. But ultimately, maybe not really knowable. And as my Islamic students there's admitted no to me, he doesn't really love you either. So we'll get into that too later. But he has a prophet, and the prophet laid down lots of rules. Yeah, the law. Correct. Which, of course, we kind of already had. Right? The basic moral law. But we'll talk about morality again later in our course. You see how once you start to talk about anything, you end up talking about everything? That will happen a lot, and that's just fine. Because whatever we touch on, we'll bring up again. Like, we'll talk about the angels in depth. You see what I mean? Don't worry. <laughs> Don't be overwhelmed. How much time do I have on? About 15 minutes. Okay. 
so I better not get started on anything else serious. Okay. Can I erase this? Well done. Bravo. You got me. Okay, so we now have two tasks for ourselves. First, theism. It's one thing to state it. How do we know it? And then, the interactive element, or the invasive element. How do we know God came into our world? Those are the two key elements to Christianity. And so, we start by saying, this is St. Thomas's way of putting it, there are some truths about God can be known by natural reasoning from the evidence available to any human mind. Yeah, well, I can't get into that until next week. All right. So this would be those things that you don't need a Bible. This would be prior to knowing anything about the interaction that Jesus came into the world. This is something you could do back in Socrates' time. Socrates was a theist. 400 years before Christ. Didn't really know the Jews at all, but was convinced that God existed. Why? Right? So, Can we know that God exists? Can we know that God is one? Can we know that God is all good? Can we know that God is all knowing? Can we know that God is all powerful? Yes, 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 yes. You say, I'd really like to see that. I bet you would. Stay tuned next week. Come on back. Uh, Yeah, I can't give you that proof for this week, but we will be doing that next week. Because if God doesn't exist and we can't have any reason to think it's true, then we're in a rough spot to start, right? Theism has got to be known, first of all. So first, theism. Some truths can be known about God by natural reasoning. Anybody can see the argument. Anyone can run the argument. There are actually about 19 different arguments for God's existence. All but one fit a general category, and we'll look at that in some detail next week. Okay? But then, once we know God exists, and we know those basic truths about him, which are generically known from the things that are made, then we're going to have very specific additional things. What if God wanted to tell us something else about himself? Okay? And we'll talk about why maybe he would want to do that. That's a good question, too. But we're going to have some truths, then, that are extras. And we can prove that there are extras. Because God is infinite. And no matter how many things we know about God, there's an infinite additional things about him that we don't know. Right? So, God could always have an additional truth he might just want to tell you. For whatever reason, including some really good reasons. So some truths about God cannot be known by natural reasoning, etc., etc., etc. 
comma. So, God revealed them in a special way. So these truths are sometimes called truths of revelation because they are revealed. And these are called truths of natural reason because anybody can do those proofs. Okay, so we can show that God exists and that he's a perfect being. But let's take an additional claim that we know from Christianity that God is three persons in one substance. How in the world would you ever have figured that one out? I mean, why not seven in one? 23 in one. Could be. Nope. Not could be. We know that. Once we get down here. But from up here, could be, right? Yet for all we know, it could be. So if the... Scriptural arguments or just simply arguments? Well, right, that, yes. Good point. Okay. Arguments? I can give you scriptural arguments. Yes, you can. But scripture is something revealed, isn't it? Jesus right. came yeah. down, knows about God, and says, oh, by the way, there's three of us. Yeah, the baptism of Jesus. The, the yeah. Was... So it takes an extra something to get us to know about that. Right. There's a whole bunch of extra somethings that Jesus comes into the world and says, oh, by the way, guys, these are a bunch of extra things you don't know. We're like, whoa. <laughs> right? FYI. We, FYI, we did not know that. And you never would have been able to figure that out simply by looking at the structure of the world with the God proofs that we'll look at next week. So there's additional truths that we know, not by natural reason, but by, anyone know the word? Revelation. What was that now? Revelation. Yes, by revelation. And the means, this is the thing, and the means is called, not natural reason, but faith. Okay? Now, faith is going to turn out is a special form of reasoning. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It's not an insane jump. It doesn't make you irrational. Okay, but we're going to see that in some detail next week. So, two big missions for our next week. I want you to really read your text carefully that you've been assigned, okay? First, is theism true? What can we know about God strictly from natural reasoning? And this is important for your friends, okay, who are atheists, or frankly for any of you who've interacted with people and they just wonder, why in the world do you even think God exists? Well, we have really good reasons for thinking God exists. And if you understand those arguments, you will have a better means to be able to offer a good reason. But then secondarily, why Christianity? Why not Scientology? Why not Hinduism? Why not Mormonism? Why not Judaism? Good night. Why not any of the other ones? Why this specific form of interactivism? That God came into the world to interact, and why the invasion? Why do we believe this? Well, that's the question. Is faith legitimate? If so, how? Everyone understand? So that's our big question for next week. Yes, I love it. Okay, questions on anything we've talked about today. Uh, I I heard once... I think it was actually the Catholic priest who mentioned it, that, that, that the Holy Trinity was like defined by the Catholic Church. Was there any accuracy in that? Well, it would, depends on what you mean by defined. If you mean created out of nothing, so they just voiced it upon us, no. 
if you mean that the church and the councils tried to sort of figure out how God could be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then the council worked out by saying, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, and then the Trinity emerged as the view? Yes. And you can see that process. And if you read, if you, if you're into this, you could read St. Thomas's book on this in the Summa Theologica. There's a whole section and he has a series of questions, maybe 10 to 12 on the Trinity specifically. And each one, you slowly but surely see how that's the only move that's left. Similarly, like how we did, it's the atheism or theism is not same exact structure. And in the end, that's the answer that pops out. So the church does a lot of reasoning. The way that the way we say it is this. Jesus gave us a deposit of faith, all this information that nobody knew about. And we already had the Jewish revelation, right? So now we have two sets of additional information. And we're like, whoa, what are we going to do with all this? And then we started to think about it. We're like, hmm. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Does it mean this or does it mean that? And so what we view it as this whole time ever since, what we've been doing is unpacking the deposit and figuring out, okay, what does it mean? How does that interact with this? If this is true, then this would be true. What follows? And it's sort of a picture starts to emerge. Things start to crystallize. And so some of what the councils were doing was conflicted different interpretations of that deposit. And you had this group in the eastern side of the empire and this group in the west. And they'd all get together. They, okay, let's work this out. A year later, ta-da! Ecumenical council says this is what actually makes sense. And that's what's been happening, unpacking. We don't really think that there's brand new revelation anymore. Okay, Jesus, frankly, gave us enough. <laughs> so we've been unpacking it and then seeing as we learn new truths in other fields like the sciences, okay, how it all fits together. Because as Catholics, we don't think that anything from here conflicts with anything in the other areas. Truth is truth is truth. But we have additional truths on top of the normal ones. And so the question is, how does that bigger picture look? Does that help? Yeah, it does. Okay. Anything else? Other questions in your mind? Yeah. I've been reading the Bible starting from the beginning, and um, it's not a question, but I'm just amazed that we are allowed to live. For all that the uh, Jews did against God, <laughs> and they go for 40 years and they'd be fine, and then they screwed up and said, oh, here's our golden calves again, and then yeah. big things happen, and comes down, and they go, oh, oh, we're sorry, we're sorry, we believe in you, and then they'll go fine, and then another 40 years are it goes the golden calves again. I'm like, well, if that's not evidence of unforgiven, you know, being forgiven. <laughs> it's true. There's a we could make a powerful case that humanity should have been wiped out, but then there's that text we had from two weeks ago. Remember that pick story of the lost sheep and the lost coin? Apparently, Jesus will be like, okay, there's 99 of you that are these corrupt people who will not just full of hate and you know, murderous intentions and jealousies and envies and pride against one another. But there's that one little sheep. So I'm going to get that one. So Jesus has got a really big heart for the one guy. And so that's how we got to view it. Because we deal with so much crap that people do to one another. And we've got to constantly maintain the hope for that one sheep. Because in the end, everyone's going to get what's coming to them. You got no worries about that. And then when the king returns, all things will be made right. So we must never lose heart. And if God could have wiped us out and didn't, he must know what he's doing. So we surge on and don't give up. Okay, Deacon, do you want to end us with a prayer and some announcements? Some announcements and a prayer. Um, 
this is for the text. There's two texts that 